is your aviation operation taking the right approach to managing risks from fatigue? And do you really understand the effects that this and other employee fitness for duty considerations may have on your operation? From the National Business Aviation Association, this is Flight Plan. I'm Rob Finfrock with your trusted source for business aviation news. Concerns about fatigue and how it can affect our fitness for duty really aren't anything new. That said, it's such an important and far-reaching issue that it's understandable if operators may still be looking for the most effective approach to combating these risks in their operations. Joining us today to address some of those questions is Dr. Daniel Malacone, Chief Scientist and CEO of fatigue and risk management research firm Pulsar Informatics. Also on the line is Greg Farley, Manager of Aviation Safety and Security and a Senior International Captain at John Deere Aviation. Greg is also chairman of the Fitness for Duty Working Group of NBAA's Safety Committee. Daniel, let's get started with some of the ways that fatigue may affect us. Certainly. So when we are fatigued, uh, we, we have uh, lapses of attention. Uh, we have uh, working memory deficits. We have uh, our risk perception, our perception about risk changes, and we accept more risk. Uh, we have, uh, there's an effect called uh, tunnel vision where uh, we get fixated on one particular uh, line of, of uh, reasoning or strategy and we're unable to adapt uh, to different strategies or change strategies even when it becomes obvious to others that, that uh, our current strategy is, a, is not a good one. Uh, we're irritable. Uh, we are um, we have a difficult time uh, inhibiting our responses. That is, we're impulsive, and uh, in general, every aspect of our cognition and function is diminished. We are worse. We are a worse. We are a worse version of ourselves when we are fatigued. So, flipping that upside down, when we get the rest we need, we are the best version of ourselves. We are a better version. We are smarter. We are more, we think more quickly. We have better memories. We're more creative and we're able to problem solve. We, we get along with our coworkers and our family members. Uh, and we're, we have, um, the right introspection or the right, um, temperament on our mood and, uh, and, uh, everything seems to go better. So, um, it's it's surprising that given the importance of sleep, um, it, it it all it's not always our top priority, and oftentimes in aviation, the logistics of aviation and crossing time zones and, and early starts and night flying and the schedules that we keep uh, make it difficult to get the rest we need. Uh, but really, it's something that is a biological imperative. That gives us a lot to think about, Daniel. But something you said that really jumped out to me is how you describe the various ways that fatigue affects our perception of risk and our willingness to accept greater risks. That kind of physiological effect is scary. When we are fatigued, uh, the, these performance degradations are are not something that we can overcome with willpower or professionalism. That is, we can't just say, I'm wearing a nice uniform and I'm trying really hard, so everything's going to be okay. Uh, this is something that is, is uh, uh, again, a biological imperative. Greg, this also sounds very similar to the effects from intoxication. Yes, it seems that, you know, when we're talking 
a lot of times fatigue and alcohol intoxication, there's kind of parallels drawn between the effects of both. And it seems that the risk averse and risk tolerability is is one of the really strong parallels between being fatigued and being intoxicated on alcohol. And uh, Daniel can probably speak to that because that seems something that we are all familiar with after a couple of beers. We're more tolerable to taking risks. Being fatigued and being uh, drunk are not the same thing. They're different modes of being impaired and they have there are key differences in that impairment. But the truth is they are both impairment and studies have been done to quantify the similarity between just the stability of vigilant attention, that is the alertness of individuals who are fatigued compared to the alertness of individuals who are drunk. And what's astonishing is given rested individuals, once you extend the time that they're awake to 22 hours, so wake up in the morning and be awake all day, and then extend the time you're awake so that you're awake for 22 hours continuously and into the nocturnal period, into the nighttime, you're comparable from an alertness perspective to someone who's drunk, who's 0.08 blood alcohol concentration legally drunk. So the one parallel is uh, alertness deficits. Um, there are similarities between the two modes of being impaired. And as Greg uh, pointed out, uh, your risk perception also changes your, your response inhibition. Uh, you become disinhibited um, under both conditions. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of quantitative uh, science done to compare the actual numbers on those other domains of cognition and the other modes of impairment. But just qualitatively speaking, there are definitely uh, similarities. So Greg, tell us about how your aviation operation went about addressing fatigue management how it really kind of started was I was a terrible sleeper and I, I knew I was having trouble getting rest and, 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 and everything. And so I started looking into it, um, how to sleep better. And then I, I came across fatigue risk management, um, as it was kind of really starting the inner aviation and part 91 operations. I learned a little bit about what, what was going on. And, and, uh, I proposed the idea to our management at the time. I said, you know, I'd like to gather more information. And so I did. I learned a lot about it. I did some research on the science and uh, came back with a proposal that we put this in place. It wasn't a it was a resounding yes across our management. So we started preparing our fatigue risk management program and we tried to adapt the uh, Flight Safety Foundation's duty rest guidelines as best as we could to meet our operational needs. And what we did is I first started with kind of a gap analysis. I looked at what they wanted us to do versus how we fly the airplanes. And really, we were already operating about 90, 95% of the time within their guidelines. So that was a good number to start with when I was saying, hey, let's draw some lines in the sand here that are more strict than what's in our FOM. Because 90, 95% of the time, we're already operating within these guidelines. So we kind of started building this model. And then before we went and I did the education to our pilot group. I asked everybody to do a two-week sleep challenge. And I, I would encourage anybody who's listening to this and curious about how well you perform when you're well-rested uh, to try this. And so we did a two-week sleep challenge where everybody kept a sleep journal. And they did everything they could to try and get to where they were getting seven to eight hours of sleep a night and waking on their own at whatever time they wanted to during the morning. So some of them set like 7 a.m., some set 6 a.m. And towards the end, uh, I think people really started to notice that, wow, I do perform better when I'm well rested. 
where fatigue comes from, there are three factors. One is sleep debt. That is, we all need around eight hours of sleep. Some people need more, some people uh, need less, but it, the average is around eight. And when we don't get the sleep we need, we develop a debt. That is, if we need eight and we get six, that's a debt of two. If we do it two days in a row, the debt grows to four. Three days in a row, the debt is now six. So it's a debt like any other debt. And the only way to pay off a sleep debt is to get the sleep that we need in, in some recovery sleep. And so that's a big factor in, in flight operations, especially if you have a trip with multiple days where the tempo is high and, and you're just not able to get uh, your, your eight hours or the sleep that you need on a daily basis. The second is time of day. So humans are not nocturnal. That is, we are a daytime species. Everything about our biology is wired to be awake during the day and to sleep at night. So other species that are nocturnal, like owls, bats, and mice, their biology is wired to be awake at night and to get their rest during the day. And so when we're working at night, when we extend our duty days late into the evening, or we're starting early before sunrise, or we're flying across the night on, on a, you know, a red-eye flight or crossing time zones, uh, we're working against our biology. So if you're feeling the effects of fatigue and it's the middle of the night and you're flying a plane, it's not because there's something wrong with you. In fact, the opposite, your body's doing exactly what your body's supposed to be doing. It's just, you're really not supposed to be there. And then long days, the third factor is long days. Uh, we're all good for around 16 hours. That is humans look the same up to a, a point of around 16 hours. And we all look okay. We're all alert. And then once you extend the time we're awake beyond 16 hours, you start to spread out the population. That is the most sensitive among us start to manifest deficits right in the 17th hour and uh, more resilient in individuals are able to hold their performance perhaps to the 18th or 19th or even 20th hour. But eventually we all reach the limit of what we're able to cope with and we manifest deficits and becomes problematic from an operational perspective. The thing about these three factors, sleep debt, time of day and long days is individually they're a risk factor, but when you have two or more or all three present, uh, you know, you have a sleep debt, um, you, you have a long day, and now you're into the nighttime period, that's, you have all three factors present, they magnify each other. So one plus one plus one doesn't equal three, one plus one plus one equals 17, or something like that, that there, there's a, they, they amplify and magnify each other. And that's when we get into situations where the risk of incapacitation is, is real and fitness for duty concerns are relevant. We're speaking with Greg Farley and Dr. Daniel Malacone about fatigue management techniques and other fitness for duty considerations for business aviation flight operations. Greg, you've implemented a dedicated fatigue management program at John Deere Aviation. How does that process work? We do recognize that operationally, especially doing around the world trip or international trips or just long domestic duty days, you're going to get fatigued. And so what we try to do is to make sure our crews are well rested prior to the trip and they've had opportunities to reduce or get rid of any sleep debt that they're already carrying. And then we give them opportunities after the trip to recover and to try and get rid of any sleep debt that they accrued while on the trip before we start crewing them to do other missions. Overall, it's worked out really well. Of course, it's not only fatigue that can affect our fitness for duty, right, Greg? There's many things that can contribute to deficits in fitness for duty, but we've kind of decided to try and simplify 
the matrix a little bit and, and really just focus on there's three. We have fatigue, medical concerns, and mental health. And, and really any entering this triangle at any one point can lead to, to deficits in the other. Uh, as Daniel uh, talked about earlier, you know, when, if you are fatigued, you, you kind of see the world differently and your, your perception of how things are happening emotionally to you can change. And so if you are fatigued and then something that happens and you perceive it as bad, but now because you are fatigued, you're taking it uh, even more emotional toll on you. Well, then that interrupts your sleep and then it can cause you to be more fatigued. So we, we've kind of just tried to narrow them down into just the three things, which is fatigue, mental health and medical fitness for duty issues. But all three are interrelated. Daniel, tell us a bit about the approach your company has taken in modeling these interrelated risks. The way that the mathematical model works is it uses the flight duty period and flight information to calculate the risk score. That's it. Full stop. That is, it's not taking into account uh, individual pilot reports and pilot perceptions. That is, it's an objective quantitative framework based on the schedule. And what it's what the mathematical model is providing is a measure of the degree to which the flight and duty schedule is a risk factor for the operation. So it's just quantifying one element of fatigue risk, and that's the element of fatigue risk within the flight department's control. That is, are we providing flight and duty schedules that provide for adequate rest opportunity, and is the timing of our duty appropriate and the duration of our duty appropriate for humans to be able to do consistently and reliably. Now, there's a whole other part of fatigue risk that the biomathematical models are not capturing, and that is individual factors. Individual factors could be things like um, an individual has a susceptibility to fatigue, uh, just a genetically uh, instantiated trait that where they're very sensitive to fatigue, or that individual could have insomnia or uh, be dealing with a medical condition or taking a, a drug, could be taking an antihistamine or, or some medication that's interfering with their ability to sleep or their ability to be alert. So all of those individual factors and individual factors can include things like, I have a new baby at home. Uh, we have a new baby at home and I'm up all night with the baby or uh, I'm caring for an elderly parent or uh, I'm just staying up watching uh, Game of Thrones on Netflix. All of these things can lead to fatigue due to what I would classify as individual factors that the biomathematical model is not capturing. So in many cases, flight departments that we support, they'll use the biomathematical models to confirm that the flight and duty schedules are providing adequate rest opportunity and are compatible with, with uh, fatigue and, and biology. And they'll also use a second tool, which is a very brief uh, alertness test to quantify the stability of vigilant attention and alertness as a verification that whatever you did during your time off and whatever your individual factors are, you are showing up for your duty period in a fit state. And we have, a, as a flight department, we have a responsibility and a tool that we can use to quantify it and verify that you are in a fit state. Another issue, for instance, that could be an individual factor is, is pilot commuting. Um, in many cases, pilots are, are driving in or even flying in from a great distance for their flight duty, and that can impact their ability to get adequate rest, even given a sufficient amount of time off in the schedule. So that 
fitness for duty test is a, is a sort of catch-all for all the things that the biomathematical model doesn't know about. Lots of pilots and other aviation personnel are now wearing smartwatches that include the ability to track the quality of the wearer's sleep. Daniel, are these wearables an effective tool for recognizing fatigue? Wrist-worn watches that can uh, estimate sleep uh, can be useful tools. Uh, there, there are certain challenges associated with them. For instance, they're, they're costly. Uh, and the second is there's questions about the data. That is, who has a right to see that data? Obviously, the individual has a right to see the data. But uh, it, it's become apparent that the, the flight department probably doesn't. That is, that, that's under the umbrella of private information. It's not your boss's business what time you went to bed last night. It's your professional responsibility to show up on time in a fit state for your duty shift, and, and your employer may have the right and, and responsibility to verify that you're in a fit state, but there's a limited number of questions that they, they, they should be able to ask about what you did during your off-duty time and what data is available about that off-duty time. So there's some logistical cost and privacy issues associated with using them in a systematic framework in a flight department. But as an individual tool, they can be very valuable to help bring a person's awareness to the importance of getting good, uh, sufficient time in bed and, and adequate sleep. Where it becomes potentially problematic is when individuals start to be, develop anxious feelings about the data. And with sleep, you, you, you don't want to have anxious feelings about sleep and you don't want to engage in something we call sleep effort. You, sleep is something that should happen naturally. It's our job to put ourselves in a quiet, dark, comfortable place and, and log a number of hours time in bed. That is, devote the time to give your body a chance to sleep. But you really don't want to have a lot of expectations or, um, or, or deliberately try and force your body to sleep. That's just going to uh, work against you ultimately. And so to the extent that those watches help bring awareness, help people to prioritize getting adequate sleep, they're great. To the extent that they can be the source of frustration or anxiety, there's a potential for them to be misused or used in such a way that is counterproductive. And so in the right hands, in the right use case, they're, they're good things. And, and there's some potential uh, risks associated with using those technologies or paying too much attention to the numbers. In closing, Greg, what are some tips that aviation operations should consider to properly quantify fitness for duty requirements and particularly fatigue? I think a fatigue risk management program and policy statement is, is a very good start. I think we have to kind of go back to even a safety management system. And, and this gets real kind of, it can be very personal. And when it, especially when it comes to emotional fatigue, subjective scoring of fatigue, at, at ours, we have a very good trust and just, just culture. Our crews can tap out for really any reason, and we trust that they're doing it because they, they don't think they're fit to fly an airplane. And if they don't think they're fit to fly an airplane, we don't want them flying an airplane or working on an airplane. And so we have uh, we've worked really hard to have that culture, and I think that is probably one of the most important things that a flight department can do is that to have a just culture where everybody trusts each other to report, and we don't have to say what's going on. We just got to say we've got to let somebody know that we're not fit to be in this airplane. One of the things that we have on the MBAA Safety Committee is we published a policy statement for fitness for duty about two years ago to give departments a start with saying, hey, this is our policy statement and you can adapt it to make it work for your department. 
but we wanted to give departments a starting place to start thinking about this um, before you're standing there with an issue and you don't know what to do. Fatigue management and other fitness for duty requirements, including medical issues and mental health considerations, will be in focus at NBAA's National Safety Forum, coming to the 2020 edition of NBAA Base in Orlando, Florida. You may also find information about combating fatigue on the NBAA website at nbaa.org forward slash fatigue. And that's the latest from the National Business Aviation Association. Remember, you can subscribe to all Flight Plan episodes at Apple Podcasts in the App Store, wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or download them from nbaa.org. I'm Rob Finfrock, and thanks for listening to Flight Plan.